Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we look back at the TV of 1999 from a dodgeball game here <laughs> in 2019. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybar. And I'm Phil Lisko. And today we're delighted and honored to have Rolling Stone's chief television critic, Alan Sepinwall, on to talk with us about the Freaks and Geeks pilot, television in 1999, how things have changed, et cetera, et cetera. Alan, it's so good to have you. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on, truly. I mean, we're, we've wanted to have you on for a while, so we're, we're thrilled not just to have you on, but for uh, the, the first episode of our miniseries on Freaks and Geeks. Um, yeah, Alan, does this, is, did this um, television show air before you invented television criticism? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes, I invented television criticism. No, I had been uh, – I was a TV critic for the Newark Star-Ledger, which was Tony Soprano's hometown paper, yeah. uh, for a few years at that point. So that – you know, th- this was well into my time. I was already kind of a jaded veteran even though I was like 25, 26 when it debuted. Um, but I really – I was knocked out by this pilot the second I saw it. So you saw you saw it live. No, I saw it months before. The way the job works, uh, even today, is you get the network pilots several months in advance. So I've seen multiple versions of this, including the one that I believe is now restored on the DVD where Kim uh, goes and yells at poor Sam uh, because she thinks he's been staring at her. You know, there's a bunch of stuff that didn't make it to the final air version on NBC that fall, uh, but I got to see all of that. 
it's it is crazy to me because I mean, as as our listeners hopefully know by this point, we're doing the we're doing every episode, and and obviously I've watched ahead, and we've been sort of rewatching them. And uh, Kim Kelly Kim Kelly is my friend, which was banned by NBC for being. <laughs> and you're just I'm watching, I'm just like what could possibly have banned this episode from? Like what they could have possibly thought was so. Uh, bad about this show is crazy, or at least in terms of, I guess it was just mean spirited. I mean, what, what exactly do you think there? I mean, they told me uh, Garth oh. Seer, the head of NBC, told me once that it was basically it's the scene where Kim's stepfather is like trying to get in the car while they're trying to drive away, and he said they felt that was just much too scary and much wow. too dark. And, you know, I mean, and I said, scary. yeah, but like Kim goes from absolutely hating Lindsay in the previous episodes to being her good friend for the rest of the show. Aren't people going to be confused? And he looked at me like I had five heads because <laughs> executives back then had research which showed, you know, this was a different time before DVRs and DVDs and streaming and everything. So they had research that showed that even the most passionate fans of most shows on average watched one out of every four episodes. So they didn't worry about continuity at all. And I've been showing, coincidentally, Freaks and Geeks to my daughter over the last month or so, and she was kind of lukewarm after the first three episodes, in part because Kim was really awful to Lindsay, and this was hard for her to take. And finally, we got to Kim Kelly is my friend, and she completely turned around on the series and couldn't believe that NBC never aired it. I didn't know that NBC never aired it because I yeah. I I watched that for the first time not on NBC I watched it on uh, DVD probably I don't know fifteen sixteen years ago something like that so uh, I couldn't conceive of the series <laughs> without that without that episode which which I agree with your daughter I think that is the episode where the where the um, series it's not so much that it turns for me but it uh, it kind of unpacks another layer that I didn't know it had until that point. Yeah, it's it's it really is crazy to think that that episode didn't air with the run, with the original run. It was supposed to air in the sequence that that it is on the box set now. Um, but yeah, it basically, I guess it premiered on West Coast stations on in April two thousand, and then in a wide release, quote unquote, on September fifth two thousand on the Fox Family Channel. That they and then they they aired all eighteen on Fox Family, right, right? But it's the most edited of all episodes shown on the Fox Family Channel. Like it's it's baffling to me that you would think that this episode was absolute just I don't even know I don't even know what you would think there was drugs and sex or something in this episode and it's, even it's if insane. there was well yeah I mean there's yeah. that too uh, so I'm gonna give a quick very quick synopsis for the pilot of Freaks and Geeks for our listeners who have not uh, seen it but a group of high school students in 1980 faces social uh, various social struggles Lindsay Weir rebels and begins hanging out with a group of burnouts courtesy of an invitation from Daniel Desario her uh, her affiliation with this gang of freaks and her quitting the math leads worries her friends and family and her friend most specifically Millie her depression started after her attempt uh, to stop the teasing of a special education student goes terribly wrong and ends in him being injured Meanwhile, freshman Sam Weir struggles to find the courage not only to confront his and his friends bully Alan, uh, but also to ask cheerleader Cindy Sanders to the homecoming dance. Pilot of Freaking is premiered on September 25th, 1999. Uh, we should talk a little bit, Alan, about uh, the premiere of Freaks and Geeks on September 25th in the deadliest of time slots on Saturday at 8 o'clock. Yeah. Oof. Oof. <laughs> I mean, this was back when the network still programmed things on Saturdays. So, you know, they they tried to argue that this was good for it. I remember NBC in the years previous to that had to run a bunch of crime procedurals. Like this was where The Pretender aired, where Profiler aired, sure. things like that. You know, I mean, 
Freaks and Geeks was kind of doomed from the start, in part because NBC hated it, but also just I, – I think it would have been a tough road no matter what, which is funny when you look back on all the people who made it and were in it. Yeah. But at the time, it just would have been a hard sell. But putting it on fr- Saturdays just absolutely killed it. It just it, – it's, it's one of those shows where – I mean, I even could have seen it maybe doing better even on Fridays than Saturdays. Like, I, there's there's a part of me that feels like the audience for this show is probably not home Saturday at 8 o'clock. Probably not, no. <laughs> you know, whether, whether you're Daniel Desario or whether you're Sam Weir, you're hopefully out either raising hell or going to see a bad comedy, you know, with the right. local multiplex. Or yeah. playing D&D. Yeah. Yep. Or watching Dallas. <laughs> Oh, Dallas. Um, But to make things worse, it wasn't aired continuously either. The show was taken off the air during the World Series in October and later put on in a new time slot against ABC's, uh, at the time, Red Hot, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Uh, Reviews are great, but uh, Freezing Geeks couldn't keep an audience, and the producers created a website for the show, hoping that it could keep fans engaged and aware of upcoming episodes. Uh, But the bigwigs at NBC refused to share the URL on ads or anything like that. Like, literally, NBC tried everything they could do to kill this thing. Here's my question to you, Alan. Why make it? <laughs> Good question. Like, if you hate it so much, what are you doing? Uh, I mean, I remember – so there were two guys running NBC at the time, Garth Anseer, who I mentioned, and Scott Sassa. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of conversations with both of them back in the day when I would be out in California for things. And Sassa's defense was basically – they watch the pilot, and we're going to talk about it. And the pilot is mostly dark and angsty, and you know, bad things are happening and humiliation. And then at the very end, Sam dances with Cindy Sanders, and he's able to fast dance to come sail away. Mm-hmm. And Lindsay is so uplifted by seeing this that she asks Eli, the special needs kid, to also dance. So it ends on this sort of happy, uplifting note. And Sass's argument was. We thought that's what the show was going to be. We wanted them to have like little victories every week, oh. and that was not the show that Paul Feig and Judd Apatow were interested in making. They were you know, aspiring to something a little more realistic, a little more difficult, and once that became clear, especially around the time of you know, Kim Kelly is my friend, I think NBC just threw up their hands and said, you know, we, we don't know what to do with this. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess that- – I guess that I mean it does make sense. If if you're thinking that that the only sort of hill to climb is the pilot and that from that point on you're going to see a happier version of these kids, sure, but I don't know. I, I mean I, I've pitched shows, I've been on shows, mm-hmm. Kenny's done the same thing. Uh I find it hard to believe that these guys were withholding their what what type of show they wanted to make. No, what I know of both Paul and Judd over the years, they do not – they wouldn't have tried to like trick NBC into making something else. But just the way the development process works is you're making a whole bunch of shows at once. You're dealing with a lot of things, and so you can't ever focus too much yeah. on one show when you're a broadcast network. And I'm sure there was a part of them like they're having a conversation, and they're saying one thing, and Feig is saying another thing. And NBC thinks, oh, they completely understood what I said. And Feig and Apatow think, oh, they completely understood what we said. And nobody understands anything. That seems to happen a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Particularly with broadcast television. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I I think that this pilot is is special 
For a myriad of reasons. Um, I'm, I'm going to read a very brief uh, snippet from the AV Club's review of, uh, of Freaks and Geeks, a, a rewatch of it by our, our mutual friend and fu- uh, past and future guest, uh, Emily Vanderwerf, um, who said, What's sort of stunning about the Freaks and Geeks pilot is not very much happens. It's loose, it's lumpy, it's filled with scenes that do nothing other than build characters. It's one of the best pilots ever made, but that's largely because it eschews so much of what, make pilots, what makes pilots good introductions to TV series, namely the ways in which they ease the viewers into the world of the show. Freaks and Geeks Pilot doesn't really bother with that. It tells viewers it's set at McKinley High School, it takes place in 1980, and it declares immediately at the beginning that it won't be about picture-perfect WB-ready teenagers. But then it mostly settles in and simply occupies its world without pushing too much. There are whole scenes, usually with the freaks, where it's not immediately obvious what say, a character's name is. The name will be stated naturally in dialogue where it might come up rather than underlining four or five times so the audience gets it. It's brilliant, but it's also easy to see why a larger audience never warmed to it. Um, I think that's a, that's a fair assessment. I think that the show is, is um, almost dishearteningly real at times. It, it feels sort of akin to my so-called life, um, which was was it airing around the same time, Alan? I think it was. My so-called life was 1995. Was earlier, oh, yeah. so okay. So it's it's interesting. You know, that's four years earlier. Um, a similar sort of show that was canceled that had a sort of a. a I mean, I would argue that my so-called life might have had a, a more fervent and a more you know, dedicated at the time. I think it did. Yeah, but it, it, it's interesting. Both of those shows felt sort of. And, and the word that comes to mind, this might not be fair, but sort of like grimy. Like they weren't clean. They weren't slick. These shows felt real. That high school, those kids, their clothes, the, the fact that they all look like they need to have a shower. Like there's just something very real about those kids and about this world. Would you agree, Alan? No, ab- absolutely. They're they're kind of scruffy. There's a later episode where um, Sam is trying to contemplate whether he should dress better. And Neil points out all the kids in the cafeteria who are more stylish than him, and the camera pans around. And it's like the worst possible fashions of 1980. (laughs) And Sam is in a, like, just generic T-shirt, and he looks better than any of them. So, I mean, it really, you know, Feig was a couple of years older than the freaks are in this show. Right. But they really nailed the references of what 1980 was like and how just unpleasant it could be. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I don't know how old you are, but I, I, I think you might be slightly older than I am. I, I was born in 1980, uh, so I, I wasn't in high school in the 80s, but it certainly feels like that world. I mean, it, the, the attention to detail, the mm-hmm. specificity of the show is the thing that makes it so special. Every detail feels lived in, and, and from all accounts, it feels like that was sort of the modus operandi, you know, for the, for the writing staff anyway, it was, it was, they were given a questionnaire on the first day to sort of list all the various stories that happened to them in high school. I mean, mm-hmm. it, they, yeah. they wanted this to be as real as is humanly possible. Have you done that in, in rooms? <clears throat> I have not. Have I you? have. Yes. Really? Yeah. Based on this freaks and geeks thing. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's kind of amazing. I love that. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of wish, I kind of wish that it did. It, it just, it feels so lived in. Um, Alan, I have a question. Um, kind of about broadcast and, and teen shows because talk about my so-called life, talk about freaks and geeks. Um, if you take Fox and the CW and, you know, their, uh, their forebearers out of the equation, <laughs> um, have, has there been a teen show that's been successful in CBS, ABC or NBC? 
I'm trying to think. I mean, I remember like 90210 was kind of a big deal. You know, that was Fox uh, because there had been very little history of teen shows lasting very long. I mean, you had things like The White Shadow, which ran for three years, but yeah. the main character was the coach. You know, you could say the same thing about Friday Night Lights afterwards. But no, there's not a lot. There was sort of this belief that teens didn't want to watch shows about teens. They would just watch the shows their parents were watching, and so they would watch shows about grown-ups. So there's not a lot of history. And just one point, since you brought up My So-Called Life before, it's interesting. I feel like both shows have kind of waxed and waned in the whole question of which is the better um, high school show as people look back. But My So-Called Life is very much a female POV POV show, and even though Lindsay is one of the two main characters on Freaks and Geeks, Freaks and Geeks always feels like much more of a boys' show to me, uh, me than too. my so-called life did. So they're they're nicely in balance with one another. I think that yeah, that 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 seems yeah, it's much more male oriented. Although Kenny and I were talking about it at, at breakfast the other day about how much Kim Kelly drives the show. You know, yeah. in terms of story, Kim Kelly, as a fellow New Yorker, Kim Kelly was the Reggie Jackson. She's the she's the straw that stirs the drink. Uh, <laughs> and I'll be asking you about your feelings on R.J. Barrett later. But uh, oh god, <laughs> I know I follow you on Twitter for for uh, TV opinions and hot takes on the Knicks. <laughs> Guys, like Freaks and Geeks is dark enough. Let's not talk about. It. <laughs> We'll do another podcast other time on what it's like That's to be amazing. a long-suffering Nick fan. I, I do think that the show really sort of encapsulates I, – I mean I think what makes it so special really is that it feels like these characters have never gotten their own show before. You know what I mean? Like these kids are not – I mean in the, in the myriad of TV shows that have existed about teenagers – You've never seen these kids before. Like you asked before ninety nine. Before ninety nine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes. Since we've we, this show broke new ground in a lot of ways, and this show, I think this show is on Netflix for a million years if it if it went on today. Like, yes. Well, I wonder if this show would have been on for a million years if it was on. I guess at the time it would have been the WB, WB probably. Yeah. I I because I keep thinking that the the bar is a little weird. You know, shows on the WB were consistently the lowest rated shows on television. Even the quote-unquote successful ones where yeah. the Seventh Heaven and Dawson's Creek were, were not at the level of a Freaks and Geeks, for instance. So I keep wondering if this show is just a victim of where it landed. Because I know that um, their next show was the, the college show, right, Alan? Um, un- undeclared. Undeclared, and that was a Fox show. I yep, think. and a half hour. So one season. One season. I think that, I think that they could have – that show could have wound up on a perhaps a WB or a UPN been stretched out to an hour and lasted longer as well because these shows that lasted on WB and UPM were, were just not up to this caliber. Mm-hmm. But it, I think there's also a, a couple things. One, li- like Emily's review for the AV Club mentioned, this show is sort of very specifically an anti-WB show. The first shot is the two WB characters, the jock and the cheerleader in the bleachers, and it's making fun of them. And immediately we pan down under the bleachers to Daniel talking about his Molly Hatchet shirt. Yeah. Um, and it's just like it's <laughs> – it's saying like we are not like these shows on that other channel, so I, I, it would have been a weird yes. fit. And just so many of the stories were deliberately like sort yeah. of 
almost audience antagonizing. There's a great, uh, you know, back in the day, I used to listen to all the commentary tracks on the DVD set. And when you get into the Lindsay Nick relationship, Judd Apatow goes on at length about how it just amused him to depict a relationship where one of the two characters was miserable the entire time. And hmm, maybe that's why the show didn't stick around. You think the audience didn't want to watch that? I, I love their relationship. I, I, I'll push back a little bit against the 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 jock and the cheerleader. What show is that? <laughs> so like the the WB shows. One Tree Hill. I guess, but that was after. Mm-hmm. So that I, I WB shows are Buffy. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about like Buffy, Dawson's Creek, Kill More Girls, Kill More Girls shows that are yeah. about about outsiders and loners too. So, I mean, popular, which is like a, a spoof of all this stuff as well. Roswell. I mean, these, I, they, they were, there was a little bit of a strong man. Much prettier though. I mean, not that there's like unattractive people in the Freaks and Geeks cast, but other than Daniel and, and maybe Lindsay, they really try to downplay that as much as possible. It's true. That's it's true. true. That's true. Uh, so speaking of the cast, I just there's uh, there was some casting stuff that I think is sort of fun to, to, to talk about. Jesse Eisenberg was nearly cast as Sam Weir. Uh, Busy Phillips, who ultimately became Kim Kelly, was originally auditioned for the role of Lindsay as well. A few others were uh, Lizzie Kaplan, auditioned for Kim Kelly and Lindsay. Lauren Ambrose, who's six feet under, auditioned for Lindsay. Shia LaBeouf tried out for Neil. Uh, NBC pressured the show's producers to stunt cast celebrities in small roles, and Britney Spears was one that they tried to get on the show, which... <laughs> Can't even yeah. imagine. I that's mean, it's like, absurd. That's like Paris Hilton in the second episode of Veronica Mars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just crazy. It always drives me nuts. It's also nuts to think that it was the acting debut of Seth Rogen, Lizzie Kaplan, and John Francis Daly. None of them had ever been in anything really? before. Um, and it's it's really impressive. You know, I I know that um, you know there there are there are questions to be made about whether or not some of the actors are as good as other actors. But I do think that the ensemble on the whole work incredibly well together. It, it, it's one of those shows that doesn't – Lindsay's technically our lead, but it, it really feels like an ensemble. No, th- they're great. Everyone in the show is so good. And it's like every time I go back, I suddenly have a new favorite. You know, I went through a long period where Bill Haverchuk was my favorite character and I was just watching for him. And this time with my daughter, I'm mainly focusing on Busy Phillips. Like she has, ever since Kim Kelly is my friend, she has really fallen hard for Kim and then gets annoyed whenever Kim uh, lets Daniel mistreat her and then she forgives him quickly. It's it's hilarious. Yeah, yeah it's, it's amazing. It's, it's also crazy to see um, the ages of the people on this show. So you have John Francis Daly, who actually was 14 in real life. Linda Cardellini was 24, playing 16. Sam Levine, Martin Starr, Seth Rogen were all 17. Jason Siegel was 19. Busy Phillips and James Franco were 20 and 21, respectively. Like, this was a very young Linda cast. Linda Cardellini was 24? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> she doesn't look 24. She, I mean, it's amazing. She, she literally looks the exact same. I know. She's but, yeah. It's crazy. Uh, other little things that I love: Bill Pope shot the pilot. You know, the the, the cinematographer behind the Matrix <laughs> shot this pilot. Hell of a year. <laughs> uh, and it looks great. You know, it was it was it was the camera crew was under strict orders to make sure that scenes look drab. Uh, they you know it takes place in the fictional uh, Chippewa, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit. The crew used green and gray tinted lights to achieve so called Midwestern colors. Made sure that the show made made it look drab again these are all reasons why the show was not successful all of the things that we love are the reasons why it doesn't it no one really watched it but we do now at least if you can get the out of print dvd set uh yeah what's that all about i bought it on amazon on blu-ray 
they that set is still available or they did a remaster of it but do you know why it got pulled from streaming i it's just it takes two to tango and you know the the studio has to want to sell it and somebody has to want to buy it. I can't imagine a streamer wouldn't want it just given the talent of the people involved. Yeah. You can put Franco or Siegel or Rogan's face, you know, right big on the icon, but you know, it's DreamWorks, I guess, doesn't want to you know, sell it for whatever they can get. That's, that's insane. Um, well, so let's, well, let's talk about the, the, the pilot story sort of in general, but you know, it, it's, as we mentioned, we open on our on our jocks and our cheerleader. We go beneath the beneath the bleachers. I would argue one of the best openings of a pilot, which is that it immediately immediately tells you who these characters are, what this world is going to be like, what this show is not going to be like. Mm-hmm. It, it is it's it is a, a declaration so early. Um, you have to respect it. Uh, we then get our geeks uh, who are last to appear, uh, doing their best impressions of Bill Murray. I think that there's a very well-observed difference in this show between a nerd and a geek. (laughs) Um, Yes. I think that that's kind of the genius of of the geeks group, which like the the freaks you get, you know exactly who they are uh, and exactly who they were in your high school. But nerds aren't watching Bill Murray movies. (laughs) No. Geeks are. (laughs) Um, and I think, and I think that's why these characters to me, I mean, nothing wrong with a nerd, but I think that's why these characters to me are so endearing because I think all of us pop culture obsessives can see ourselves in that, in those characters in a way that I, I can't in your typical, uh, your Millie, for instance, who is a purebred nerd. (laughs) (laughs) In her DNA. Yes. Uh, so we then, we see, we, obviously we see our geeks, uh, one of the things that I love, what are your thoughts, um, Alan, on uh, Mr. Weir? Uh, well, see, I had a pre-existing relationship with Joe Flaherty because I had grown up watching SCTV. So to me, I was just sort of happy to see him back. And every time he does that whole thing in the pilot, but you know what happened to him? He's dead. <laughs> I wish they kept that going. I, I laughed so hard. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's it, to me. He's a very funny character. Instantly, my daughter does not like him at all. It's, it's taken until like, I think the the diary episode for her to warm to him even slightly. He is like, he why doesn't he bad. understand them? Why doesn't he give him a break? You know the 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 opening shot of episode two on mm-hmm. his drawers um, is enough to turn any young <laughs> girl off. For his the the uh, the dead joke though, like you know what happened to him? He's dead. It really, in my opinion, it pays off with the you think smoking is cool. Let's dig up my friend and see how cool he is. <laughs> it's just fantastic. Uh, you get Lindsay doesn't want to go to the dance, um, and then you've got Lindsay on the smoking patio with the freaks. And what's interesting is that they do a very good job of not actually showing these kids smoking. But in, do they never show it? I don't think they do. They imply it. There's lots of kids holding cigarettes, but they never actually pull it to their mouth, which is for what that's worth. I think it's, it's interesting. Uh, I love one of Nick's first lines to Lindsay, which is, hey, I know you. You're the one who got an A. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those uh, – the smoking patty well, – I guess as a, as a parent, how do you feel about the depiction of, of smoking and drinking and all of that with your, with your teenager, Alan? 
Uh, it's okay. I mean, she understands smoking. You know, she doesn't intend to smoke. She has very little interest in alcohol. So I guess on that level, I'm doing something okay. But um, no, I think I there was no way they would be allowed to smoke. So you know, by broadcast standards at the time, I think even now, I'm not sure a broadcast network would let teenagers smoke on camera. But um, I think it's less like it's one of those things where like it never occurred to me that they don't until you just said it. I just think of Daniel as a smoker. Yeah. Daniel is just <laughs> it would be this you know I think there are a lot of rules in place particularly with movies right now that um you can't smoke in a lot of studios won't let their characters smoke but they will make an exception for period and interesting uh I think that you kind of can't tell the story of this group of people without having c- cigarettes beyond the present but because they would definitely be smokers it's 100%, also up until you know up until smoking was kind of stigmatized to the point where it wasn't cool maybe 10 to 15 years ago people like this smoked all the time now it's really shocking to me the way jewel has yeah. made ha, has has brought tobacco back in such a major way I thought, I thought we killed the dead <laughs> but, <laughs> but apparently not so much. oh no it's yeah, back with it's such great. a vengeance it's it's insane but so I, I'm I'm curious, Alan, as you're watching it with your with your daughter, how does it feel to watch it as a parent versus watching it perhaps prior to being a parent? Uh, well, there are occasionally moments of, hey, I think what they're doing here is not a great idea, <laughs> followed by her rolling her eyes all the way into the next room uh, in response to that. But mostly it's good. Mostly I just sort of – I'm curious for for her reactions to it because she doesn't know a lot of the pop culture references. You know, when the geeks are introduced and they're playing, you know, I'm all right from Caddyshack, she's never seen Caddyshack. There's – when Neil does his impression, she doesn't know who most of those people are. Um, You know, the Dallas jokes, et cetera, sail over her head. So I'm I'm impressed by still how much she winds up enjoying it because it's very much a Generation X kind of show. Yeah, it's it is impressive how well and or, sort of how organic the the pop culture references are laid into the show. It, they're, they're so intrinsically built into the DNA of these characters, is what I'm sort of saying. Like that, Bill loves Dallas feels right, you know, and and it, it doesn't feel like they're just doing it for a joke or they're just doing it because they think it's a it's a cute thing, or at least that's the impression I get. I don't know how you feel about it. No, it seems like the thing you know we we learn later on about Bill's relationship with his mom. That's absolutely the show he would watch with his mom. And also, you know, back in those days, kids around that age watched primetime soaps because that's what was on. In in a way, it kind of seems like a bit of a commentary on what you were saying before about the way um, television networks view the viewing habits of younger kids. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Um, in yeah. that they were just watching what their parents watched. I watched Dallas with my parents as really? a yeah, Dallas, because I watched everything my parents watched up until, you know, up until I was like 15 or 16. So I remember I, watching Knott's Landing with my mom. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so I think it was kind of a, another bold, well-observed choice <laughs> yeah. that Haverchuk is probably watching whatever his parents are watching. Yeah. Bill's the best. I mean, oh, I, it's so funny. I love him so much. That his, not only is he just so just lovable, as, but his delivery, Martin Starr is just uh, unbelievable. He is. I, I think this is an opportunity as well. Um, I want to talk about the credit sequence a little bit and how perfectly that in – how concisely in what? I think it's a 30 – maybe 30 seconds, something to that effect. Each of these characters are perfectly rendered and introduced each week. If you are a person who hasn't seen the show before and you watch that credit sequence, you know those characters. It's kind of incredible. I'm not sure I can name yeah, a credit sequence that does that. And it's also a bummer that Kim's not in it. It's true. Yeah. It's just, I feel like each and every one of them, without words or dialogue, I mean, as I mentioned this to Kenny the other day, but the moment when um, James Franco stops the guy from futzing with his hair is just, <laughs> and then he just kind of like, it, it's perfect. It's, it's, perfect. It, it's just, that's the character. It's it's amazing stuff. And the song is perfect. I mean, it's. Uh, and they also do it on the um, the the end of the acts in the pilot. I I don't know if this is in the DVD you watched, but they also have Millie in the end of the acts. They have Harris in the end of the acts as oh, really? well. Yeah, and at least in the version I watched, because I'm watching the Daily Motion. Don't tell anyone. Um, wow. And they have. <laughs> don't tell anyone. I, I yeah, yeah, I've yeah. ever gone to Daily Motion. Um, <laughs> it's, it's and so shameful. I know it's so humiliating. Um, so yeah, they have Harris. They have Millie. Uh, they may have someone else in that too. They may have. Um, they may have Alan. I'm not sure, but yeah, they really kind of get into all these other characters. Um, and I love that too. I, I love this world. It's it. It really the is of it. it. That that's yeah. It, you know what it kind of reminds me of, and it, obviously to to a lesser or a smaller degree, but it does feel like The Simpsons, where every character just feels so well drawn that you're just like this universe feels gigantic. But what's cool about it is. To go back to the first shot of the pilot, um, they almost never go to typically popular kids. Even the bullies like Alan. Alan's a loner and a weirdo too. Um, you know, he's not your – he's not a jock. He's not yep. your typical bully. He's – you know, and I also love that he squints from the sandlot, which is just too much for me. <laughs> that kid grew up to be a long-haired bully. I think it's also interesting that um, – so NBC originally ordered 13 episodes of it. Feig wrote and directed the the finale, the 13th episode, which is Discos and Dragons. Um, but then NBC picked up five more episodes of the show. So they pushed the finale until a few weeks after that. Um, and then three of those episodes never aired until the Fox indicated uh, later. Um, what are your thoughts on on the finale a little bit, Alan? Oh, it's great. It's so perfect. And I've talked to Judd over the years a little bit about what they might have done in season two. And some of those ideas sound interesting. But I just I love the idea of these 18 episodes existing. They're great. You never really have to think much more about what would happen to any of them. It you know, it's they're preserved in amber. The show never got bad. There's not a bad episode. 
in the bunch. And that ending in particular, you know, there are some characters who don't get a ton to do in it, but almost everybody gets at least one sort of cool grace note before it goes away. It it did feel like a, a, a perfect ending to, to the series. It, it also felt like Sprinkled in there, there, there felt like there were some fuck yous where they felt like, where, where you, you felt like the show was pushing back against NBC to a certain degree. Um, one of those things perhaps being when Ken dates, uh, the girl with the ambiguous genitalia. Yes. Um, which in, uh, Vanity Fair, Apatow said was a fuck you to NBC. <laughs> um, just cause they were like, now we're, we're gonna get ambitious and aggressive with storylines that you would never approve of the show had a chance of surviving. Um, which I think is interesting. You know, it, it's, I'm not sure that I can think of many other shows that were as bold as this show was on broadcast. It, and I say that not in the sense that like, yes, you had your NYPD blues, you had your shows that were, were, but those shows were successful. Like, I can't think of a show that, that knew its that days show were had numbered. a lot of cap, the NYPD blue had a lot of capital to play with. Sure. So. This show didn't. This show was just sort of saying, well, if I'm going to go down, I'm going down with a, without, you know, with a fight, which I think is interesting. Um, can you think of other shows that sort of exist in that, that universe? Uh, probably that's, I'm tr- I have like 10 million shows in my head right now. I'm sure. So I didn't mean to put and a lot, and like you said, a lot of the ones I'm thinking of are the ones who were able to do it through success. This was more the, you know, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. I mean, to a degree, uh, Joss Whedon's dollhouse in its second season comes to mind. Cause I think they came back knowing that they, you know, after a couple of episodes that they were doomed. And so the show took some really sharp, turns from that point and became really weird and leaned into the serialized stuff that Fox didn't want at all because at that point it didn't matter. There's a show that Emily Vanderwerf has written about. Um, God, I'm trying to remember the name of it now, but it was a sitcom with Brad Garrett. I'm trying and- to think of the same exact show. The one where the last four episodes, the guy like realized he was on a show. <laughs> yeah, it's the whole last season. Oh, basically. it's the best. What's that show called? <laughs> ordered more episodes than like the network was ever going to air and so the production knew this and so they decided to just go very very meta oh, and so well, one of the characters becomes aware like and i think it's tim sharp from undeclared it is tim becomes sharp. aware that he's on a tv show that his wife has been recast several times all kinds of things that feels a little bit like when felicity went into oh, time travel no 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 this is different <laughs> This is different because when Felicity went to Trump travel, he's trying to right all the wrongs. What the <laughs> fuck was this show called? I'm, look, I'm looking it up, guys. Oh, man. That's t- <laughs> uh, it was after Raymond. Till Death. Yep. Till Death? Till Death. The last four episodes of that show go so far off the rails. And I, think it, and I think it is Emily Vanderwerf that kind of kind – of, uh, He wants to do a – she wants to do a podcast about that. Told the, oh, it, yeah, I she, believe she does. She was the one who yeah. clued me into what was going on there. And my God, it's like actually kind of thrilling. Like the boom there, mic there drops There was a Rob out. Lowe show called <laughs> Lion's Den that did a similar thing where like they, they were canceled but still in production. And so they revealed that like this law firm, everyone was a serial killer or a vampire or something equally yeah. crazy. That sounds amazing. Lion's Den with Rob Lowe. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah, it's great when that when that kind of stuff actually makes it there. Yeah, because on a, as as we can all attest, the hoops you have to jump through for something to actually air on television is insane. So to think that the the lack of fucks necessary <laughs> for something like that to get on the air is amazing on many levels. From you know, but I, I love it, Alan. I want to ask you a question about. Uh, 
one of my favorite books of all time, The Revolution, was televised. Oh, I've heard that book. It's pretty good. No, it's it's tremendous. <laughs> <laughs> Who wrote that book? Uh, Alan wrote that book. Um, I love that. I, I've, I've, Thank you. And I love The Soprano Sessions and TV the book. I think, you know... You know we I, can't wait to have you back for The Sopranos. Alan. Yeah. I mean, I've been well, reading... I, I, I have a few thoughts about The Sopranos. <laughs> <laughs> no, we... You know, I've, I really have been reading you for 20 years. So, um, and every... All the, the kind of books you put out in, in that milieu uh, really speak to me. But so the revolution was televised real quickly for our viewers is, and you know, of course I'm summarizing your book. So steer me right if I've gone astray, but basically it's a show by show retelling of the golden age of television. And, um, my question for you is it starts right around 99, right? 97 uh, ish, yeah. right? Oz is the first one you, uh, you catalog. Oz and Buffy are both from 97. Everything else is 99 on. Um, Notably absent, freaks and geeks. Did you feel? Did you think about putting it in there, or is there a reason for that? Or because there are a few one season shows in there, if I remember correctly. Um, no, I think pretty much everything in there lasted a while, and that's one okay. of the reasons it's those it's those twelve shows because people mistook it. Some of them at the time the book came out as this is Alan writing a book about the twelve greatest shows of all time or the twelve greatest shows of this era, which immediately led to why isn't the West Wing in there? Which speaking of another show from nineteen ninety nine, and my argument was it's it's the story of the transformation of television into this new golden age and now into peak TV, which feels to me like a, a separate era uh, from the one I wrote about in that book. But it's it's t- using each of these shows to tell a different aspect of that story um, and talking about like the influence they had on what came after. And as great as Freaks and Geeks is, and I think it's better than a, a bunch of shows that are in that book uh, – its influence was almost entirely in the movies. You know, Paul and Judd and everybody else, That's interesting. you know, they, they failed once, then they failed again with Undeclared, and then they went off and they conquered cinema. Uh, and they changed, you know, movie comedy forever. And there's certainly a great book to be written about the idea of, like, here you had all of this talent concentrated in one place, and nobody watched, and the network hated it. And look at what everyone has gone on to do since then in things that are very spiritually similar to Freaks and Geeks. You can see its DNA in everything a lot of these guys have made since then. Um, But it didn't really fit into the story I was telling in Revolution was televised. That makes sense. I mean, I think that the only the only thing I can think of is is Apatow's involvement in girls, right? I mean, I think that's the only time that they've that either of them have sort of dipped back into TV. Am I wrong? He's he's come back a couple of times. I've I've interviewed him about a few projects here and there, but um, no, mostly they've done movies. And it's just like you you can certainly look at its influence in terms of like Allison Jones now casts all of the best comedies on television, and a lot of other people now try to hire everyone who was involved in Freaks and Geeks one way or another. It just doesn't you, you don't see its fingerprints quite as much in the TV that followed after as you would in something like The Sopranos. That makes sense. I mean, this, yeah, this the. I, I would imagine that we all agree that The Sopranos is the most influential television show so uh, that came out. I mean, certainly I they came out in '99, but I mean, to, yes, yeah, yeah. It, it it feels sort of seismic in so many ways, and I do love the symmetry of of uh, The Sopranos and The West Wing both coming out in '99 and seeing sort of one would argue one of the best broadcast television shows and one of the best cable shows coming out at the same time. And sort of the, 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 the paths, the diverging paths of those two shows, I think is interesting. Yeah. And West wing was kind of an end of an era. Like it's the last really great broadcast show of that type. Yep. 
it's 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 fascinating. I mean, this show really does feel like um, it, it really just it's its own animal. I, I don't think we've seen anything really like it since. In a lot of ways, I don't feel like even in the cable space, you know, we're now seeing this a, a little bit of a an upswing of, of YA stuff being made. You know, you've got your euphorias and uh, 13 reasons why. And, and, and it does feel like teen stuff is a little bit on the rise, which I'm, which I'm fascinated by. I think it's because, you know, with streaming, they know that teens watch streaming shows. Um, I'd say something else though. Um, the euphorias and 13 reasons and those shows are definitely geared towards a teen audience. Sure. And like Alan said in the beginning, this is a Gen X show. Yeah. This really wasn't for teenagers as much it was as it was for people who lived in the 80s. So it – Which it, made it that much harder to sell. It, it, it's kind of neither fish nor fowl and I don't mean that in a bad way, of course. I think that's kind of what's awesome about it. But I can't think of a lot of shows like this um, that aren't neither fish nor fowl. So you don't see a lot of teen shows not aimed at teens. I guess is sort of the is is the takeaway at least right now. I mean, I and, and certainly I guess at the it's time it's kind of hard to say exactly what Euphoria, who who Euphoria's audience is supposed to be because. <laughs> I don't mean that in a bad way either. I, I like I like it, it. I know it's on HBO, and and I would assume that HBO thinks they're going to get. Well, their HBO Go numbers are quite healthy, from what I'm hearing. I'm sure, and I'm, I assume they think they're going to get an older audience just by virtue of of being HBO. But I have no doubt that it's it's being watched by twelve to eighteen year olds. Yeah, I mean, what are your thoughts on Euphoria, Alan? Uh, I think parts of it are really incredible, and parts of it want me to throw make me want to throw a brick at the screen. Um, so I think it's a really interesting show. It looks gorgeous. I think a number of the performances are great, particularly Zendaya and Sydney Sweeney. Um, and then other parts are very clearly like here. I'm a guy in my forties writing about, you know, teenagers with my references from when I was a teenager um, and sort of my, my memories of that. Uh, and then there's also the evil criminal mastermind jock who just every scene that he's in, I want to, you know, Throw a brick at TV. <laughs> I'll just say that a lot. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do really enjoy the show, and I, and I guess, I mean, on some level, you can draw a line between your skins and your freaks and geeks. You know what I mean? And and seeing sort of, I think there's, I obviously, skins isn't a comedy, and and what have you, but I think that there is this. And and forgive me because I, I, this might sound worse than it should, but there is a, a a somewhat sort of dirty seediness to some of the kids on Freaks and Geeks. I mean, specifically the freaks. You could see this show dipping and going to a darker place, and and it feels like someone could watch this show and be like, well, what if we went farther with that? What if we took these kids and we went, you know, to an even darker place with them? I think you could perhaps see a line between those things. You could, and there's occasionally hints of that, like when when Daniel's cousin and friends show up at the party yes. and beers and beers. You're like, oh, there's Daniel knows some really dangerous people, yeah. but the show mostly avoids that. You know, like the the episode with where he gives Sam the porno. Yes. Like you don't actually see the porno, and for the most part, like it's it's clear that Daniel has an active sex life with Kim and possibly with other girls, but mostly it's a relatively innocent kind of show. Like there have not been any plots. Again, where I'm watching it with my 15 year old daughter, where I say, I kind of wish that we had waited another year or two to see this. 
For sure, for sure. I mean, that brown bag that he gives him that porno in is the dirtiest brown bag. <laughs> um, you don't want anything that's in that bag. But and it, yeah. pre- and it presents the porn as bad, like it scars Sam, and he has to go talk to Mister Fredericks. It's true, really you know, to understand that sex is okay. Yeah, but yeah, I would I would agree with you that this show never fully goes there. But I could see a writer watching it and being like, "But what if I did?" Is yes. sort of is is sort of what I'm getting at, and and I and I do think that that a euphoria for all intents and purposes uh, could potentially have a tenuous connection to a show like this. I think that it's you know I, I think the show also it, it it's so I, I want to talk about the the um, the Ben Foster stuff in the pilot, yeah, because I think that it's it's tricky terrain, and and I think they handle it in a way uh, that's really impressive. You know, it, it could have been handled really poorly, and yet it felt delicate, and it felt like it came from a place of of heart. Um, especially how how heartbroken Lindsay is by by making fun of this person, even unintentionally. It's a weird thing to say, but it also feels like it was written by someone who actually knows people like that in their lives. Sure, um, it it didn't feel like kind of a stock depiction of someone with special needs. It felt. Like an actual three dimensional person, and maybe that you know maybe that's to Ben Foster's credit, but um, I think a lot of that was at the script phase too. And yeah, I mean, if you direct- watch that scene, one of the things I really like about it is it's really ambiguous whether the other kids are making fun of Eli or whether they are genuinely his friends, yeah. and this is how they hang out with him, and they like being with him, and they just find him kind of funny, but they're not they're laughing with him and not at him, even as Lindsay assumes that they're just mocking him. It's it's true. It's walking a very fine line, which again is in the writing and it's in the direction, it's in the acting that, that it can exist in that space. Um, I think that in lesser hands, they would have been villains, just yeah. obvious villains. And this never goes there. Even that, that kid who is. Who Goldberg? Is that his name? Well, the guy from Mighty Ducks. Uh, yes. Yeah. Who is in uh, the band with the guys in later episodes. Right. When he shows up from time to time, he kind of reminds me of Nelson from The Simpsons. He oh, just a little kind of, bit. He kind of shows up from time to time and goes like, hey, hey. And then, like, he just – but, you know, he never feels necessarily malicious. He just feels like this is his bit, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but that – again, Ben Foster uh, – and forgive me, does he come back? He comes back one time when they did um – uh, I'm trying to remember the uh, Carded and Discarded, which was sort of the second pilot, the episode that they specifically produced for the premiere in the new Monday time slot. Okay. Uh, Eli comes back for that, and uh, he's a much less complex character at that point. It's just a running gag that he really likes Three's Company. And so the, the geeks keep using his love of Three's Company to distract Vicki Appleby and other people while they're trying to befriend this other girl. Um, and the sense I got from listening to the commentary is that Ben Foster did not enjoy yeah. the character becoming much more lighthearted, which is why you never saw Eli again. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I again, Ben Foster, tremendous actor. I mean, just uh, uh, so it, it's it's interesting that that even at that stage of his career, he was you know so you know adamant i guess but i also think too just how how bad lindsay feels like i can't sort of stress enough her arc in this pilot and and the the trials and tribulations she goes through over the course of the pilot is is really amazing stuff and and obviously beautifully rendered by linda cardellini but 
it, it's she's really struggling. She's really being pushed and pulled in a bunch of directions in this pilot in a nuanced way. Yeah, because it could be very simplistic that it's just she joins the freaks because she has a crush on Daniel. Right. And she does have a crush on Daniel at this point, and Kim can tell, and that's part of why she is so awful to her here at the start. But it's there's a lot more going on in that speech that she tells Sam about being there with their grandmother when their grandmother died. And it's like this existential crisis that she's going to on top of the more gen- generic existential crisis that any teenager deals with in high school because high school so awful – uh, it's it's really remarkable bit of writing they give, and they put a lot on Linda Cardellini, and she handles it all beautifully. She she really does, and and her her arc and and how she continues to or or how she loses her crush on Daniel is fantastic as well. That that slow burn of of the slow realizations mm-hmm. over time of how much of a god, yeah, like how, how much of an how awful guy he is. Yeah. He's so. I mean, the 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 best one being obviously his his sob story, and and I believe it's in the fifth <laughs> episode when she starts laughing at him. Yeah. Track one, track two, track three. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just, it's fantastic. It's, I mean, and again, I, I, it, it should be said that every character is given the love that they give Lindsay from a writing and a direction perspective. Like you really don't feel like of your, of your six, let's say seven leads that they don't love all of these characters equally. Or not. <laughs> um, oh, I totally agree. Yeah, and, and it, your, your periphery characters, your peripheral characters, your your uh, Millie. I fall so much in love with Millie. Like when yes. you get to the second half of the yes. series, she's so great. Uh, and and Jeff, uh, Mr. Rosso, who just feels yeah. perfectly rendered. Uh, Thomas Wilson, who will always be Biff in my brain. Yet somehow, you really fall in love with him on the show. He's tremendous. Uh, and I would, I would say Cindy also. That's a really, yes. these are really well observed. I, I hate using that word over and over again, but no one falls in their typical archetype, right? Cindy is part of the improv group. She's a cheerleader. She's the pretty girl on campus and she's unfailingly nice. Yep. Those people existed too. Yep. You know, I, I think that, I think that there's something that happens with Lindsay in this show that is really kind of, um, revolutionary just basically it lindsey makes a lot of choices in the pilot that don't seem all that well motivated and over the course of the series you understand exactly why she's doing what she's doing so i think it'll a lot of shows like this you might ignore that you might just say sometimes kids do some things they can't explain in high school or you know sometimes kids just get tired of their friends and just th- these non-answers that aren't real things but with Lindsay I feel like I know why she's kind of moved away from Millie and the Mathletes why she's drawn to the freaks why she's nice to Eli why she has the relationship with Sam with Sam she has where she's mostly protected but sometimes repulsed by him sometimes pushing him away yeah um I think that that I I in in a weird way, um, I think that is an is an interesting ante- interesting antidote to the to the Angela Chase character too. Sure, which I think is a little one lane compared to Lindsay. You know, Angela's a little bit more blinkered, whereas you know. Yeah. Lindsay, as she's going through her own identity crisis, is really a little bit more generous of spirit and a little bit more curious about what other people are doing, which often winds up getting her into trouble because people want to be left alone. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's like one of my favorite lines in the pilot is when Sam goes to Lindsay's bedroom and he asks her, "Why are you throwing your life away?" It was really <laughs> <awesome>. <laughs> and it, it's just there is something sort of 
it's it's a perception thing. Like other people perceive her her choices in different ways. Like I, I think that it's I don't know. I think it's really brilliantly rendered. Um, well, I think Linda Cardellini does an amazing job yes. of this is kind of a weird thing to say, but of of being magnetic. In that, in every scene of this show, she's the one you're that she's in. She's the one your eyes are drawn to, and not because of the way she looks. But it's because of the way she carries herself, and I think that is true um, of some people in the world. Where, Absolutely. where no matter what group they're in or station they're in, they're the people your eyes are drawn to. And I think that that makes sense. I think it makes sense why Sam would care. Would, would first of all relay someone else's question about her. <laughs> um, and would care like that. And her parents are really obsessed with her and the freaks seem to be somewhat obsessed with her. Um, I get that. I, I, I see why she's such a magnetic character. Um, so I just want to, uh, real, Talk real quick um, about the end of the pilot. When we're at the dance, um, I, I, I can only speak for myself here, but I've definitely been in the moment when you're dancing with a girl and the song speeds up and you don't know what to do. Oh, um, big time. <laughs> and yeah. it, it's so perfect. Uh, it, and I love that it has a happy ending. Um, to, you know, that, that the pilot has a happy ending, that, that it just – I'm – it's just it's it's great it's great to get a win, and it's not to say that you're losing throughout the pilot, but you do feel like fuck high school's hard. You know what I mean? You really do feel it, so it's nice to have a little bit of that break in the clouds and a little bit of that levity at the end. No, it's uh, like I understand why the NBC executives latched onto that, even though it drives me nuts that they couldn't see the greatness of the rest of the show. Exactly. Uh, so before we uh, we lose you, you have a uh, a John Bonham story you want to tell us? Yes. All right. So in the pilot, early on, it, the pilot takes place around homecoming because it ends with the homecoming dance. Uh, and in the pilot, uh, earlier Nick is a drummer. It's established he's going on about John Bonham, this and that. Uh, and so when I was at that summer's TCA press tour uh, at the at the NBC party, hanging out with Feig and Apatow. I, you know, couldn't help being dirty and saying, uh, guys, John Bonham died in September of 1980. Their homecoming game would have been later. How come Nick is like not <laughs> sad that John Bonham is dead? And Judd and Paul look at each other and Judd says, God, that's a good idea. We should do something in an upcoming episode where he's upset <laughs> that Bonham died. And Feek said, you know what? Our, my school was so lame that we had to have homecoming in September because that was the only way any other team would be willing to come to our homecoming game or something like that. Uh-huh. And so that then leads into the stuff in, in tests and breasts where Nick is a sad about John Bonham and then B uses it as justification for making a move on Lindsay. Uh, and yep. I guess the second episode. So that's, that is my contri- contribution to freaks and geeks lore. Thank you very much. That's fantastic. That's awesome. it's, and it's, and, it, Congrats. It's so funny in it too. I mean, Nick is such a like, he's such a passionate guy, um, about, you know, the oddest of things, I guess, to a certain degree. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, that's one of the moments that, uh, watching it when he tries to like, he doesn't even try to make a move on Lindsay. He like tries to undo her bra. Yes. <laughs> it's just, it's crazy. And then his defense is, I'm sorry, John Bonham died. <laughs> <laughs> It's fantastic. Um, That's amazing. Well, Alan, we honestly can't thank you enough for coming on. Um, And we really hope that you'll come back. We're going to do a deep dive into uh, season one of The Sopranos uh, at some point in the near future. And we hope that you'll uh, join us for that. 
I, I would love to. I'm happy to talk about Freaks and Geeks anywhere, anytime, and certainly about The Sopranos. And, and I hear that The Soprano Sessions is a good book, too, and is on sale now. It That's what I've heard. I've, I've heard it's a tremendous book. Yes. Uh, and we, we're, as we said, we're doing all 18 episodes of Freaks and Geeks, so uh, hopefully maybe we can have you back for another episode. I would love to do it, guys. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Alan. We really Thanks appreciate so it. Thanks so much. Take care. Take care. You guys, too. Bye. So that was the uh, that was the pilot of Freaks and Geeks. Uh, we will be doing all of the uh, remaining seventeen episodes over the over the course of the next couple months uh, on Fridays. Seventeen, 17. Freaky Fridays coming your way. Fridays coming your way. Um, next week we've got David Iserson coming on to talk about uh, episode two. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean that was uh, you know. I, it's a great pilot, man. Like it's a it's, it's a, a great it's, pilot. It's a perfect episode. And how about us? We're getting Alan Sepinwall to talk about it, right? Yeah, it was, it was awesome. fucking big time. Are we? <laughs> All right. Alan's at Sepinwall. We didn't let him uh, plug his Twitter. He's That's at Sepinwall. Soprano Sessions. Revolution. Terrell. Everyone was televised. TV. The book. He really is. I, I made the joke, but he really did invent television criticism in its modern form. He, Fact. He, he really did. He invented that. He invented the episode recap with not with NYPD Blue in the late yep. '90s. Did it with Sopranos. Um, I didn't want to blow him up too much, but he really, he really is like kind of a huge influence on on me at least. Um, don't know about Phil. Uh, it's an influence on me as well. Not huge. Um, he, I mean, so yeah. he's Seppenwall. I'm at Nybart. Phil is at PM Iscove on uh, Instagram and Twitter. We are at podcast like 1999, uh, on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, follow Alan, follow Kenny, follow me, follow us, and please rate, review, subscribe. Yeah, thanks for joining us on this freaky Friday. We'll see you next Friday. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.